According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Return one more time to Matthew 28, and then I believe we will be uh, moving on to uh, Luke 24 today. Luke 24 is often thought of as the parallel text to Matthew 28. I don't view them in quite the same parallel fashion that uh, some folks do. But Matthew 28, once again, to fix our bearings, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is where we've been studying in recent weeks. We're going to return back to this again today, asking the Father to, uh, to bless our study. Shall we begin with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we have the blessing of being here today. You didn't have to provide this for us, Father. We don't want to take this for granted. Um, We ask that we might be humble under the authority of your truth. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We uh, have been studying this now. I forget how many lessons, but we've gone through point one to identify the mountain in Galilee. That's the location for this event. To me, it's as obvious as the nose on my face, all right? Big honking thing that you can't overlook. There it is. They're on a mountain in Galilee. It's not where they are in Luke 24, all right? Uh, Other aspects there of how they came near and how they wavered and how Jesus came near to the wavering disciples. He drew near to the wavering worshipers and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative and uh, went through the details on that point three then is the study on what the imperative is Um, it's kind of a no-brainer if it's a disciple maker imperative then the imperative is make disciples all right the imperative is not go understand that the imperative is not go and um, where you go and uh, in your life and where you live and all of that is a separate issue. It's a matter of uh, the geographic will of God and where he would have you to live and what he would have you to do in terms of your living and your livelihood and your temporal life circumstances and details. That's a separate study altogether. Uh, and yes, you want to be in the will of God. You want to be living where he has for you to live and, and uh, working what he has for you to work and married to whom he has for you to marry and, and so forth. He's got a perfect will for all of that. None of that is involved in the Great Commission, all right? The Great Commission is make disciples, make disciples. So if you're a truck driver in Fort Wayne or you're a, you're a uh, whatever, you're a carpenter in Dallas or you're a ditch digger in Corpus Christi or whatever you are, whatever, wherever you live and whatever your vocation is and whatever your temporal life circumstances and details are, uh, married, unmarried, uh, children, no children, All of that is secular, all of that is temporal, and and God's got a will for all of that. Don't get me wrong, I'm not mocking that, I'm not diminishing that, I'm just saying none of that's related to the Great Commission. And the the aspect that people have that, oh, I have to go because the Great Commission said go. Well, where are you going to go? You're going to go to Zimbabwe, you're going to go to the Philippines, you're going to go to, I mean, there's, there's 187 countries out there, or 191 countries out there, go somewhere, right? Well, where are you going to go? The uh, go is not the imperative. Make disciples is the imperative. And uh, we all are under the Great Commission imperative of making disciples. The disciple-maker imperative is an aorist imperative, and it's the only imperative in this context. Again, it's not a present imperative. It is an aorist imperative, meaning it's not continuous action. It's not all the time, every time. It's not all day, every day. It's not 24-7, 365. All right? You, you, can, uh, you can sleep well tonight if you, you put yourself to bed and realize, ah, I haven't led anybody to the Lord today. All right? It's not a present imperative. It's not a continuous action imperative. We are not constantly, always, nonstop doing this. But we are on an aorist tense basis, on an aorist imperative basis, doing this. All right? And so the difference is there, okay? There will be occasions, there will be moments, there will be venues, there will be opportunities 
presented, the Lord will present those before you as opportunities to make disciples. When those opportunities are presented before you, then baptize them and teach them to observe all that I commanded you and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You understand the difference? An aorist imperative is when the occasion presents itself. And it might be a hundred times in the next 30 years. It might be 10 times in the next 30 years. It might be once in the next 30 years. I I hope it's more than that. You know, I think the the more you're prepared for it, the more you're humble for it, the more you're looking for those ministry opportunities, the more those opportunities will present themselves. All right. Again, the imperative is not go. The imperative is make disciples. Make disciples. It's a global mission to all the nations, and there are two activities that define the disciple-maker imperative, baptizing them and teaching them. If you're not baptizing them, if you're not teaching them, then you're not discipling. All right, I've seen all kinds of things that have been written about as discipling. There's books out there that tell you about friendship evangelism. They tell you about social, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, go bowling with somebody. And then and, and just, we're getting to know each other better. We're, we're developing a rapport. We're developing a, a friendship. We're developing a, 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 an intimacy, okay? Great, glad you're doing that. Don't call it discipling, all right? Call it whatever else you want to call it. Call it, you know, I'm being friendly. Great, be friendly. Okay, I'm not against being friendly, but unbelievers can be friendly. I can go, I can go bowling with an unbeliever. All right, this social gospel garbage, this this friendship evangelism stuff, it just bugs me to death. All right, the Great Commission, as far as uh, we're studying it here, the disciple maker imperative. I am commanded to make disciples. All right, not bowling leagues. I'm commanded to make disciples, and that requires me to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, if they're not saved, I've got to give them the gospel. They've got to come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've got to identify with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian reality of the church age. All right? They've got to know that they're dead in Christ, buried in Christ, and they're risen to walk in the newness of life. They need to start their work as disciples on that basis. Okay? The positional truth of Romans 6. And then you get them on the daily study of, of the Word of God. You identify them with the truth. What does it mean to abide in the Word of God? to live in the Word of God. John chapter 8, if you are, uh, let's look at it again, John 8, 31. John 8, 31. And, and let's look at it with our own eyes and you tell me. I don't see a bowling alley in here. I don't see, I don't see uh, the, the, the stuff that passes for discipleship now in the pop culture. If you abide in my Word, if, See, notice in verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. If they're not saved, then the gospel is all you got to tell them, all right? Don't try to put them on a morality path or or try to make them disciples before they're saved. That's putting the cart before the horse. So many came to believe in him. And so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, once they are saved, there is a message that only they can, can grasp. The unregenerate mind can't accept the things of the Spirit of God. If you meno, abide, remain, dwell in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Notice, getting saved does not make you a disciple. They got saved in verse 30. They trusted in Christ. They now are regenerate. They have eternal life, but they are not disciples. Most believers you meet are not disciples. I, we've got this cultural churchianity thing going on, and they're, they, they're going to be in heaven when they die, but they're not abiding in the Word of God. They don't live in the Word of God. They're not shaped by the Word of God. Thinking is not transformed by the renewing of their mind. And if they're not transformed by the renewing of their mind, they are conformed to this age. They are not disciples. So he was saying to those who believed in him, if you abide in my word, then You are truly disciples of mine. And only then will you know the truth. And only then will the truth make you free. All right, the word of God, if you receive it with humility, receiving the word implanted, it is able to save your soul. You will know the truth. The truth will make you free. Nothing to do with being saved. It's the practical benefit. It's the outcome of being a disciple. That the word of God will shape your thinking. That the word of God will, will bless you in the temptations of sin, will bless you in the struggles of life. You will have freedom like you've never known before because you're not a slave to the uh, cosmos thinking process. All right. 
Abiding in the Word of God must be step number two. Step number one, you've got to get them saved. A, per- <clears throat> a perishing one in Adam cannot be a disciple. So evangelism must be step number one in the disciple-maker imperative. Obviously, the imperative is make disciples. If you're looking at a non-disciple, a non-disciple could be either saved or non-saved, right? So the non-saved non-disciple, you give them the gospel. You want to get them saved. But then the saved non-disciple, you've got to get them under teaching. You've got to get them under teaching. They have to abide in the Word of God. And the place to do it, the place to start doing it, is the upper room discourse. Teaching them, teaching them not just any doctrine, not just any obscure portion of Scripture, not just here and there anywhere. Now, understand this. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. All Scripture. Genesis to Revelation. Okay? I heard somebody the other day say, I believe everything in here from, from Genesis to the maps. Okay? Well, all right. It's a cute way of saying that. Um, yes, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. But to ground these brand new believers in the basics of what they need to start their Christian walk, where do we go? And I think the biggest clue, Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And the reference in that context to the night in which he's betrayed. The reference in that context to the upper room discourse. All that I commanded you. The content of mystery doctrine. The content of the church age revelation that he promised the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance. All that I commanded you. And so we ground them in the upper room discourse. We ground them in in John 13 through 17. We teach them about confession of sin with foot washing. We teach them about the imminent rapture of the church. I've gone, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And when I return again, I will receive you to myself. We teach them about the Holy Spirit and why it's so important that we receive the Holy Spirit and that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That we are Because we're going to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit the moment we're saved. But the filling of the Holy Spirit and the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit and all the things about abiding in the Word of God to bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. All right, John 15, to bear fruit for the, uh, for the uh, Father and glorify the Father, abiding in Christ. All of those things in John 13 through 17, that ought to be the first course of doctrine that any brand new believer goes through because this is what's going to ground them as a disciple, teaching them all that I commanded you. And then, lo, I am with you always. The imperative has a closing encouragement. The imperative has a closing encouragement. Let me get my Bible back here to Matthew 28. You know, I'm looking at this, and uh, I see 18, 19, 20, right? 18, 19, and 20. And this, this whole thing is the totality of the commission, the totality of, of the obligation you and I are under. And it's, it's, people want to chop it off and cut it off and not, not uh, read the last part of verse 20 there as if, well, that's just kind of flowery language. That's just kind of extraneous. That's just kind of like the, the begat portions of Genesis 5. We can ignore all that. Or that's just kind of like the, the uh, salutations at the end of a Pauline epistle. Big deal. Just, you know, let it go. There's a whole lot of say hi to so-and-sos and it's not really important. Okay? It's very important. It's critical. And as I look at these verses, 18, 19, and 20, and I see how much gets chopped off. How many people ignore verse 18? They don't start the the Great Commission with all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's not even thought of. You ask somebody what the Great Commission is, and they say, go. Or, if they learn what the imperative is, they say, make disciples. All right? But they've separated that out from everything that surrounds it. Don't divorce it from the authority that Jesus Christ has. Don't divorce it from the bi-locational reality we operate under in heaven and on earth. You and I operate in heaven and on earth. Don't ever lose sight of that. We, you, if you quit thinking on, the, on your bi-locational reality, then before you know it, you're just earthly focused again. And we're told not to be earthly focused. We're told to be heavenly focused. Go therefore and make disciples, but then if you forget the activities that are supposed to be baptizing them and teaching them, all right. Then you start thinking that, well, discipleship is just hanging out. Discipleship is just being, a, being an older brother to a little brother, right? And now we're just like big brother, big sister. We're just a social organization. And we just hang out. Hey, you want to go to a movie? You want to go bowling? All right. No. 
baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them, grounding them in the upper room discourse. Grounding them in the basics of of, uh, the Christian way of life. And then the encouragement. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even the low, I think, is overlooked. And low. <laughs> we need more lows. We need more beholds. We need more, uh, you say it's archaic. No one talks that way anymore. Well, Jesus did. Low means behold. Watch this. All right? Low. So don't lose sight of that. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The imperative has a closing encouragement. The personal presence of Jesus Christ is the reality for this age. The personal presence of Jesus Christ. He is with us. He walks in the midst of this lampstand. Do you believe that? He holds your pastor in his right hand. Do you believe that? He is here. He is now. He is working. And he's inside each one of us. Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. We abide in him. He abides in us, if in fact we are disciples we're not disciples well then yeah we're back in the world system again okay even to the end of the age soon telea soon telea six times in the new testament number 49 30 the end of the age understand god the father never loses sight of his focus what is he bringing about he who started a good work will complete it he has a purpose for this age and he's going to achieve it even using such flawed tools like you and me He's going to achieve it. Now, teleos means end, and telos means end, and tetelestai, it is finished. We have a lot of, a lot of terms that come from the same root. Um, but when you put the soon prefix on it, that means he's tying everything together. It is the end, but it is an end that culminates things, that brings things together. All right? That's why we have the idea of a completion or a consummation. The idea that when things come together, they're consummated. All right? And uh, we've got illustrations there, of course. Uh, Matthew 13, Matthew 24, Matthew 28. The one use out of Matthew is Hebrews, Hebrews 9.26. Let me start with that one and then back up. Let's start with Hebrews 9.26. And uh, I think this is uh, good to know. If you've read the plan of God, reader, you understand that God has a purpose in everything that he does. And that God did not start Adam and Eve in the garden with the church, (laughs) right? He didn't start Adam and Eve in the garden with a Levitical priesthood, with, uh, uh, you know, he's got a plan and a purpose and it's unfolding in stages. And presently the church is the unfolding of his plan. But prior to that, Israel was the unfolding of his plan and their stewardship responsibilities. And prior to that, it was humanity the Gentiles, in the unfolding of their responsibilities. Before that, it was angels in the unfolding of God's plan in their stewardship responsibilities. And each has come in a sequence, each has come for a purpose, and each has an end game or a result. And then ultimately, what's coming after the church? He resumes the plan for Israel because that's an eternal program. It can't be over and done with. There's an eternal program for Israel. There's tribulation, there's kingdom. There's new heavens, there's a new earth. All of these things are part of the Father's plan and program. Now, in Hebrews 9, 26, we're told that um, the uh, ministry of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ was unique in the history of the world. And when we talk about how Christ, it was necessary for what Christ accomplished, all these things that are necessary for the ministry of Jesus Christ, that uh, before Jesus came, there was a tabernacle. And before Jesus came, there was a priesthood. But then Christ appeared. In Hebrews 9.11, Christ appeared. He was manifested as a high priest of the good things to come. Now, he wasn't a priest according to the Levitical priesthood. He never once went into the Holy of Holies on this earth. He died on the cross and that veil was rent in two, but he didn't go inside there. That wasn't his ministry. He was a high priest of the good things to come. A high priest of things looking forward. See, much, much more was accomplishing than just simply finishing everything behind, right? 
we, we, we know that the animal sacrifices, we know that the Levitical priesthood, all those things were anticipatory, and he came and he finished all that. It's almost like people think the cross was entirely backwards looking because it fulfilled the, the animal sacrifices, it fulfilled the Levitical priesthood, it fulfilled all the things of what led up to it. But Jesus was also looking forward, anticipating the good things to come. A high priest of the good things to come. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. And he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. That veil was rent in two, and he didn't bother going in there. Why? There's nothing in there. Empty room. There was no Ark of the Covenant. That was that was that disappeared when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the place. All right. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He went into the holy of holies in the third heaven. The real holy of holies. The one that all the earthly holy of holies were just replicas. They were facsimiles. He went into the real one. Okay, Like Sharon and I went into the facsimile of the Parthenon. Right? The, the real Parthenon was 2,000 years ago in Athens. There's, there's a ruin of it that's still sitting there in Athens, and you can go to the ruin of the Parthenon in, in Athens. But they, they built a scale replica in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, of all places. All right? You can walk through it, and it's all glorious, and you can see all the statues and walk through the whole place. Anyway, it's kind of neat. But it's just a replica of something that existed thousands and thousands of years ago. The tabernacle and Solomon's temple and Herod's temple, these things are replicas of a heavenly reality. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the the effect of that, the consequence of that, allowed him then to enter into not a replica, but the heavenly reality. Having obtained, he does it once for all, having obtained the eternal redemption. (laughs) The replica, all right, big deal, day of atonement, got it done, great, see you next year. You're going to do it again, you're going to do it again, you're going to do it again, you're going to do it again. Year after year after year after year with a reminder of sin waiting for the coming of the reality. Jesus Christ did it once and for all. Now, uh, he entered the holy place once for all, we read in Hebrews 9, 12, having obtained eternal redemption. How long is that? (laughs) Trick question. Eternal. Now, for this reason, verse 15 He is the mediator of a new covenant. For this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant. Without that eternal redemption, that new covenant is not ready to go into effect. So that since the death, a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All right, now it goes on to talk about other things. I don't want to get lost in the covenants this morning. Now we get down to, I'm headed to ultimately verse 26. Um, But it's important that you understand the the progression of what happens here. Um, Verse 21 says, In the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with blood. Um, So we understand back when there was a tabernacle, back when there was a temple, that's what these things were doing. They were pointing ahead to Christ. And uh, verse 22, according to the law, one may almost say the things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Every, everything required an animal to die. Everything that followed from the, every offering, every, every ritual, every sacrifice. And so in verse 23, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So all the replicas had blood sacrifice rituals and it was necessary but the reality wasn't going to be the blood of a goat or a ram or a bull or anything like that all right there's there was no human high priest that could take that blood up to heaven anyway all they could do was get to the holy of holies in the replica all right but the heavenly things themselves it is necessary for the heavenly things themselves to be cleansed by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay? For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. See, based on the replica 
and the shadow rituals, the earthly people of God could be declared righteous, could be sanctified, could be set apart, could be... um, uh, could could operate in their stewardship, could operate as the earthly people of God, sanctified, set apart, forgiven. How are the heavenly people of God going to be sanctified, set apart, forgiven? All right? By the reality, not the ritual. And not by some kind of a, a blood sprinkling on an earthly thing. By the reality, the heavenly people of God can operate in the glories of what God would provide. Also, so we see better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Notice, to appear. He appeared on earth in humiliation. He appears in heaven in glory. To appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, This isn't an over and over and over again kind of thing. Oh, I hate what the Catholics do. I literally hate their mass. They're going to crucify Jesus again and again and again and again and again and again. No way. How about the once and for all? Once and for all. Now, nor would he offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Yeah, the, the high priest doesn't shed his own blood. There was a substitute, okay? But Jesus goes in and there is no substitute. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, but for Jesus Christ, there is no substitute that could be provided. He is the only provision. He doesn't go in there with blood not his own. He went in there having shed his own blood. And then it says, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. You know, if he'd have gone in there with blood not his own, he went in there with his own. He went in there to achieve the permanent, eternal, infinite propitiation to God the Father. And that's what we have here in verse 26. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages. All right, once, once. Now, one thing you want to understand, don't take this as a parallel to Matthew 28 because it's huge. The consummation of the ages, plural, is not the same as the end of the age, singular. His promise to the disciples in the Great Commission is, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, singular, is a promise of the abiding of Jesus Christ throughout the entirety of the church. All right? The promise is the abiding of Jesus Christ in the body, in in what we have today in the church age. That's different than the consummation of the ages, plural, where we're looking at the full panoply of everything from Alpha to Omega. We're looking at the the totality of the plan of God, including angels, humans, uh, uh, Israel, church, kingdom, new heavens, new earth, fullness of time. We're looking at the totality of everything, that those are the ages, all right? Eternity future is the age of the ages. And the uh, Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., is called the consummation of the ages. It is the pivotal moment in all time from Alpha to Omega. We know that time itself is a created dimension. It has an Alpha moment, an Omega moment, and a finite number of moments in between. Okay? But the consummation of the ages, that precise moment, happened on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., at the consummation of the ages, that moment of uh, conception, so to speak. All right? When the plan of God that had been agreed to from the Eternal Life Conference, the Father laid it out as as the plan of redemption, and Jesus Christ agreed to it. The Holy Spirit supported it. But it was uh, brought into effect in the process of time at the consummation of the ages. And so he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is why now when he comes back at second advent, there's no more reference to sin. All right. Verse 27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, you know, so throw away 
reincarnation, right? <laughs> you don't die and then try again next time and try again next time and do better next time. One shot, one life. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. His second appearance is not the appearance of humility. When he appears on earth a second time, it's in glory. And yet without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Sin is dealt with at the cross. All right. Other uses of suntaleia include Matthew 13, Matthew 24, and Matthew 28. Of course, Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. Let's look at Matthew 13 and Matthew 24. Matthew 13. 39, 40, and 49, and similar context for all of these. He's explaining the parable of the sower. Uh, you got wheat and tares. And they say, explain to us the parable of the tares. All right. And he says, well, the uh, one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. Same age in verse 40 that's mentioned there in verse 39. And uh, the Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the Son in the kingdom of of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, now in this context, the end of the age... Are we talking about the church? Is this the, thank you. Is this the same age that we have in the Great Commission where Jesus says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age? No. That's the church age. The Great Commission is given to the body of Christ. The Great Commission of make disciples, the disciple maker imperative is not for the tribulation. The disciple maker imperative is not for the millennium. The disciple maker imperative is for the church. When he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, in the Great Commission, it's with reference to the completion, the culmination, the conception, if you will, when the, when the bride and the groom are consummating the, the, uh, the, the marriage. Matthew 13 is talking to Israel. Matthew 13 is talking in a Jewish context, the parables of the kingdom. All right? And we went through this. If you want more on this, you can get it in, in the off the website. Review the notes on this. There's MP3 files there. There's printed notes there, what these parables are all about. But this is Israel. All right? And so there'll be application here when Israel resumes their stewardship. There's going to be application here once the church is gone and Israel goes through the tribulation. The devil's going to be sowing tares among the field there. Israel needs to be warned. And then when Christ returns at the end of that age... The unbelievers are gathered up as the terrors are gathered up and they're thrown into the fire. Every unbeliever that survives the tribulation, I don't think there's going to be that many, but every unbeliever that survives the tribulation will stand before the sheep and goat judgment and be thrown into hell. Unbelievers do not go into the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ will execute every unbeliever at the start of the, at the, of the millennial kingdom. That's why it says here the terrors are bound and, and thrown into the furnace of fire. Not the rapture of the church. <laughs> you know, it's like the anti-rapture, if you think about it. The rapture of the church, the believers are gathered out, and the unbelievers are just left behind to, to face the, uh, the wrath of the tribulation. In this event, the, uh, it's the unbelievers that are gathered out, bound, thrown into the fire, and the ones left behind are the believers who will then enter into the kingdom of Jesus Christ and proceed forward into the millennial glory. So uh, I don't know how people get these so confused. The rapture event, the, it's believers in Christ that are snatched to heaven and unbelievers are left right there. At the second advent, it's the unbelievers that are snatched, bound, and thrown into hell while the believers are left right there. After the rapture, the unbelievers that are left right there are going to continue on on the earth and be subject to uh, 
Satan and his Antichrist and horrible government and the mark of the beast and 666 and all the other garbage that's going to happen there. After the uh, this snatching event, all right, after this anti-rapture, <laughs> when the unbelievers are snatched out and thrown into hell, then the believers who remain on earth will continue to live on the earth with Jesus Christ ruling from Jerusalem, with perfect government, with perfect environment. Wow, what a day that will be. So we've got the rapture, you've got the anti-rapture. You've got Christ, you've got Antichrist. All right. But the point is, just because you read the end of the age, the consummation of the age, you've got to stop and ask, wait a minute, what age, what end, what's the purpose, what's the goal? Okay, in anything you do, what's the end game? What's the, what's the objection, uh, objective, what's the end game? What are we trying to achieve? Um, verse 49 in the same chapter, uh, different parable, this one's the, the dragnet. Kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. When it was filled, they drew up on the beach. They sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. Again, the soon talea. At <clears throat> the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? Same doctrine we just saw. At the end of the tribulation, angels are involved. Okay, and unbelievers are thrown into hell. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. <laughs> okay, so maybe the, the tares didn't do it for you. Maybe the dragnet does it for you. Find the metaphor that works. Find the, find the uh, parable that works. Most of these are saying the same thing. All right, with respect to the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 24, 3. This was their question. They said, Lord, he told them the temple was going to be destroyed. Matthew 24. I'm so glad we take the time to work our way through this. You guys that have been in this study for 10 years now, (laughs) okay, or part of that, um, do you know what the Sermon on the Mount is all about? Do you know what the Matthew 13 parables are all about? Do you know what the uh, Mount Olivet Discourse is all about? Do you know what these Upper Room Discourse is all about? And if you can't keep those straight, there's no excuse. (laughs) We've had the teaching for it now. All right? Review it every so often to keep it straight. So when someone comes to you with a confusion trying to find a rapture in Matthew 24, you can say no. Trying to find a rapture in Matthew 13, you can say no. Use Matthew 13 to explain Matthew 24 and 25 and show the the rapture and the anti-rapture. Show them the difference between the Olivet Discourse and the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up and pointed out the temple buildings to him. Hey, look at that, look at that, look at that. All excited, Matthew 24, 3. All excited about the, uh, the great building program. Okay? And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Not one stone. Which really has me puzzled because, uh, you know, there's a a wailing wall to this day in Jerusalem. The Jews go there, they make their pilgrimages there. There's still some stones uh, standing on top of one another. And Jesus said, not one stone. All right. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the suntalea of the Ion, the end of the age? We've got three questions there. When will these things happen? It's question number one. What will be the sign of your coming? Question number two. And what, is the, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Question number three. If you want more on that, again, sitting on the website. We've gone through that chapter already. But the end of the age, are they talking about the church age there? No. All right, this is still in the stewardship of Israel. This is still talking about the end of the age related to the kingdom, related to the promises to Israel. All right. Matthew, let's go to Luke 24. Luke 24. We're done with the Great Commission. We're ready now for the Great cognition the great 
understanding. What I like to call the great cognition. Luke 24. This is not the great commission. I have titled this the great cognition. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures. The great cognition. Copyright, trademark, Austin Bible Church. If you see anybody else using it, they better start paying me royalties. Okay? Not that I would sue them, of course, because you can't take a believer to court. All right. The mount, point four the mountaintop setting had a follow up event in Jerusalem. Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. I know that your harmonies and different things will try to just lump this all together as if it's part of the Great Commission. Um, I separated out. And that's why I'm listing this here as point four. I separated out. Really, I mean, if we wanted to, we could scrap, you know, edit the, the thing we've been following all this time and make this event 13. And then make the Ascension event 14. And uh, redraw our uh, harmony of the Gospels that way and just separate it out and make it a separate event. And uh, people would be none the wiser at that point. And who knows, maybe I'll do it before we publish the notebook. <laughs> All right, we'll publish the notebook and we'll make this its own event. All right, Luke 24. Now, in, this is the chapter that if we didn't know any better, we would uh, we would still be in the upper room on Easter Sunday, okay? If we didn't know any better, if we didn't have Matthew, Mark, and John, if we didn't have the uh, parallel accounts, um, we've got Luke twenty four, the resurrection, the Emmaus road, the upper room, and uh, then we start seeing. Uh, Additional messages here. Show my, uh, here's my hands. My um, here's verse 36 when he appears to them. Uh, while uh, they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst, said to them, "Peace be to you." As far as we know, this is the upper room. This is uh, this is uh, Sunday night. The Emmaus Road guys raced back to a town, and he found that, uh, that they were already gathered there, and that they were already talking about the reason why they reconvened that night was because. Uh, the Lord appeared to, to Peter. And so Peter got all the disciples back together again. And he gets all the disciples back together again, except for Thomas somehow. We're not sure how they missed him. They got the other disciples, 10 of them, back in that upper room, plus some others. Then the two Emmaus Road guys showed up. So as far as we know, here in Luke 24, we're talking about, we're talking about uh, Sunday night, April 5th, 33 AD. And then Jesus himself pops in there and says, peace be to you. And they were startled, thought they were seeing a spirit. He said, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And, uh, you know, you have any fish? Or uh, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. Verse 43. Now that's where we left off. That's the last time we've been in Luke 24. But what have we had since then? Since then, we've had, do you love me more than these, right? John 21. The disciples went fishing. They went up to Galilee. They were in the Sea of Galilee. He's walking along, and we had episodes there. And then there's the mountain in Galilee where they met him at that appointed time. And they, they went, they worshiped, they wavered. The Great Commission, okay? When we, when we move from 43 to 44 here, there is no clue that um, they've... they've changed localities there's no clue that days have gone by in fact looking from 36 to 43 there's no clue that eight days passed in between the two times he popped in there remember the first time he popped in there thomas was absent eight days later he pops in there again thomas is present see but we we don't get that in luke 24 we got to go to john to get that so in, the, in, in our study here, we, we recognize that time goes by. The word now, in verse 44, now he said to them, we've got, an, we got a, a preposition, we've got an indication, a conjunction here that shows us that, okay, 
time has gone by. The now, he said to them, is different than the while they were telling these things, conjunction in verse 36. You notice that? Okay. You know, maybe I'm goofy, but... Okay, I am goofy, but I, I think paying attention to connecting uh, conjunctions and participles and, 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 and expressions is, is important. You know, if it's while they were telling these things, then it's while they were telling these things. And as they approach the village, it's as they approach the village. You got, you got time markers that lock it down. In verse 44, now he said to them, that doesn't lock it down. That's, that's kind of like after this, later. Next day, a week later, a month later, 30 days later. When? We don't know. Okay? Now, he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. <laughs> Another clue that time has gone by between verse 43 and verse 44. Jesus doesn't consider himself still with them. Jesus is not still with them. He's popping in every so often, but he's no longer with them. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended at least twice. He's ready for his final ascension coming up. He's no longer with them. He's no longer with them. Okay? I mean, like if Pastor Ralph comes down here, and he's not the pastor here anymore, and he talks about, you know, when I was with you, during the time that I was pastor of this church, from 82 to 95, all right? And even if he comes back and he visits 10 times, 20 times, and so forth, he's not the pastor anymore. We got the illustration there. You see what I'm saying? So when Jesus says, while I was with you, he is speaking as one that is no longer in that kenosis ministry. He's no longer in the the uh, having emptied himself. He's no longer in the earthly incarnation of fellowship with these disciples. He's no longer identifying with them in the weakness of their humanity. He's moved on. He's in a, a new stage. He's in a new ministry. All right? And they haven't followed him there yet. They're going to. They're going to follow him in the resurrection, but they're not resurrected yet. So, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That he had given them a comprehensive systematic theology from the canon of Scripture. At that time, all they had was the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Today we call that the Old Testament. It's a threefold division. Even, to, even in modern times, Israel, uh, the Jews break down their Bible into three divisions. The law, the writings, and the prophets. They call it the Tanakh. The Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim. Here Jesus calls it the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Okay? Psalms would then be the writings. So the Tanakh, the Nevi'im, the prophets. I'm sorry, the Torah is the law. The Nevi'im is the prophets. The Ketuvim are the writings or what Jesus calls here the Psalms. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. I love this. This is the great cognition. This is where, now, why didn't he do this before? <laughs> I mean, what kind of a loser teacher um, uh, teaches them for three and a half years? You understand, I'm tongue-in-cheek there when I call Jesus a loser teacher, right? All right. You know, wouldn't he, wouldn't he have been a better teacher if on day one he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and then began to teach them all these things for three and a half years? Why did he wait till now? Okay. There, there's a capacity for church-age truth they, they were not ready for. That's right. And even now, they're still waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Although he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that here. Um, He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. There we go. And um, there was a previous occasion where he breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit. um, They'll get the permanent Holy Spirit on Pentecost, of course, when uh, on uh, 
Oh, I used to know that date too. On uh, May 24th, all right, 33 AD, when they received the Holy Spirit. But here he's opening their minds. It wasn't the Father's plan to open their minds three and a half years ago. All right. Now, does that mean they had closed minds? Were they closed-minded? Okay. Yeah, it's important you understand. Open is not the opposite of closed. Open could be the expansion of not quite so open. Okay. Open, but then open to more. Right. Greater capacity, church-age capacity. So, but understand, the setting is not, we're not on a mountaintop in Galilee. We are not on a mountaintop in Galilee. In fact, every indication is here when he says, uh, uh, beginning from Jerusalem in verse 47, and he says, um, you are to stay in the city, verse 49, until you are clothed with power from on high. Every indication is in this context that they are in Jerusalem. They have to be in Jerusalem or these verses don't make any sense. And then he's going to lead them out as far as Bethany and he'll depart from the Mount of Olives there. Right here at the end of the chapter. All right. Jesus restated the content of his previous messages and placed each message in its specific Old Testament context. I think this took multiple nights. I don't think this could have been in a single Bible class. I think this was a conference. I think this was a final series of classes. These are my words which I spoke to you. Wouldn't it be something if right before the ascension he walked them through every message he ever delivered? He walked them through the Sermon on the Mount. He walked them through the Kingdom of Heaven parables. He walked them through the um, Mount Olivet Discourse. He walked them through the Upper Room Discourse. You've got to close with the Upper Room Discourse, the night in which he's betrayed. And then he places each message in a specific Old Testament context. The Law, the Prophets, the Psalms. He systematically links everything he spoke back to what the Old Testament foretold. Putting it all together. Preparing them for the coming church. And he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And there he doesn't call it the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He gives it a single term, the Scriptures, to represent the totality, to represent the big picture. All right? And that's what we do. We can't lose the forest through the trees. If all we're doing is, you know, we, we, we study this book, we study this verse, we study this, but if we're doing all these individual studies in isolation of the whole, we've lost the point. We need the whole. We need the totality of the Bible. And that's what he does for them here. Restating the content of his previous messages that while I was still with you, there's a body of, there's a corpus, right? There's a body of sermonic material that consists of the very first message he ever gave and the upper room discourse, the night in which he was betrayed, and every other Bible class in between. And whatever that number is, that's a finite number of messages. And that is what I spoke to you while I was still with you. That content. And how, how much of that did they receive? Okay. You know, if, if, if everything was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books that should be written of all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said. We don't, in the Bible, we don't even have every class he ever delivered. All right. But he gives them this, this uh, perspective looking back. And I think this is pretty cool. All right. And then he opened their mind. He opened their minds. Dia Nuego. A Nuego with Dia in front of it becomes Dia Nuego. Dia Nuego. Number 1272, eight New Testament uses. Really, it's anoigo to open, and then dia expands on that. Dia noigo, number 1272. And uh, fairly common. Actually, it's much more common in Luke. Mark only uses it once. And then uh, Luke uses it in his gospel and in the book of Acts. To open or to explain. 
to open or to explain the Nuego. He opened their minds. Hmm. What's more important? Um, cramming stuff into a mind or opening that mind? Okay. You know, what we accomplish when we're in the Philippines or in Ukraine or going to Africa this summer, not just cramming theology into their minds, forcing them to be, to have a dispensational eschatology because we have a dispensational eschatology. Pathetic. Okay? Someone else will follow us and try to force them to have a, a Pentecostal uh, charismatology or something, right? They'll, they'll force something else in and force something else in. No. How about if we train in how to study, how to think, to open the mind, whereby then God the Holy Spirit will equip these men in their own studies with a literal hermeneutic to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Much better, much more valuable. All right. Goodness. I thought we were going to do all this today. Because <laughs> uh, not only do we have to look at all those verses, but then point C has uh, four subpoints. One, two, three, and four. Because Jesus concludes with a death and resurrection gospel message. Look at this. When he opens their minds to understand the scriptures, he then says to them, now he's got a new message that builds on everything he gave them in verse 44. He said to them, Thus it is written. Isn't that powerful? It is written. That's how he answered all of his temptations. The devil said, you know, if you're the son of God, make these stones into bread. And Jesus said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. He answered every temptation with it is written. Now he's providing an evangelism outline and he uses it is written. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Right? Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He would rise again on the third day according to the Scriptures. What are the two things Paul says are according to the Scriptures? That He would die and that He would rise again. Now the buried and all that wasn't according to the Scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's not mentioned here. But it is written... That the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, there's another behold, like the low, I am with you always. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. All right, so this isn't the Great Commission. Here's the conclusion, and here's the confusion, I think, because they see uh, to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, they see that little snippet of verse 47, to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and they say, oh, that has to be the Great Commission. This has to be identical to Matthew 28. Let's cram these together in a harmony and say that this is the same as Matthew 28 of go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Okay. Well, make disciples of all the nations. Do I see make disciples in that verse? Uh-uh. I do see all the nations. Okay. But then beginning from Jerusalem, was that, was that a feature of the Great Commission? No. It says, make, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jerusalem and anywhere in Matthew 28. But all the nations beginning from Jerusalem is here. How about repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Is that in the Great Commission? Do we have repentance in Matthew 28? No. Yeah, it kind of seems like this is different than uh, Matthew 28. <laughs> right? Matthew 28, go. Luke 24, stay. 
He says, uh, you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You know, if I, if I preached a massive emphasis on the stay in verse 49, like all these missionary sermons where I hear the, the rah, 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 go, go, go emphasis of, of those missionary sermons of Matthew 28, why don't I hear the stay, stay, stay emphasis of Luke 24? Well, because it would be ludicrous and inappropriate. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Well, all right. That means 10 days from now the Holy Spirit's going to descend on Pentecost. He, he, um, you know, he ascends 10 days prior to May 24th, so it'd be May 14th of uh, 33 AD. And he says, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then once the church begins, then you can go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. And you can proclaim this gospel here in his name. All right, well, we'll have to come back to this next week because this is uh, the death and resurrection gospel message and uh, part of what we'll have to study next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. And should you delay long enough, then next week we will uh, describe this gospel message and recognize how this gospel message is uh, part and parcel with our martyrdom expectation and uh, how it is connected to the Great Commission, but not identical with the Great Commission. And Father, I thank you for uh, rightly dividing the word of truth and the privilege we have to study to show ourselves approved. Thank you for the grace that allows us to have a midweek Wednesday morning service. And uh, thank you for the uh, brothers and sisters that make this a priority. I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.